Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you. Hope that you're having a great Sunday and are glad to be in the Lord's house. I'm grateful for the privilege to stand in this position this morning and for Pastor Ryan granting me the honor to do so. Uh, if you're a guest, my name is Pastor Charlie, and I'm blessed to be one of the pastors on staff uh, here today. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, let me encourage you to go to the book of Luke, chapter 16. And we'll be concluding today our parable series. And next week, i uh, give you a little preview, but uh, we'll begin uh, a series through the summer. Uh, Pastor Ryan will be launching that next week in the book of Psalms again. Uh, so you'll be sure to look forward to that. Also, uh, many of you have probably uh, seen or heard that my family and I will be taking a six-week sabbatical. And uh, that'll begin tomorrow. Uh, but I just want to say personally how grateful I am for that and just a, a time and opportunity to rest. Uh, it is something that is the desire of our church leadership to build in seasons of rest and to grant longevity to our staff. And so I am honored to have that opportunity and look forward. We'll be out through uh, the month of June and we'll be back with you on July the 4th. Uh, so I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Ryan and to our admin team uh, for just considering that and looking forward to the time of rest uh, and also to the opportunity to return and continue uh, the great work the Lord's given us here at West Cabarrison. So with that, uh, let me set us up real quick as we launch in to Luke 16. Uh, we've, we've spent a good bit of time through the parables in the last few weeks uh, working through Luke 15. Uh, and you got a, several parables there, lost coin, the lost sheep, and then last week uh, talking about the lost son. And this time, we, we've got a pivot that takes place in chapter 16. And, and this isn't what I would classify as an easy passage to uh, kind of go through today. So I want to ask you to just kind of hang with me, especially this first 20 minutes, as we try to uh, digest what our Lord is trying to teach in a parable, all right? And to kind of help set up kind of what's taking place, all right, is Jesus has been speaking in these parables uh, to the people there, and, and here's the audiences that he has, okay? And so, unfortunately, you have to serve as the lost and the Pharisees for a moment, okay? Whether you identify there or not, I apologize. But that's kind of where you're at. He's kind of been speaking, lost sheep, lost coin, prodigal son, so forth. But around him, somewhere, we'll say in this capacity right here, his disciples have been there. And we know the purpose of a disciple is someone that is being trained to follow in the steps of the person that they're kind of following or that master. And so Jesus has gone through Luke 15 teaching these parables of lostness. And in this point, we come to Luke 16. And in essence, beginning in verse 1, when we read it in a second, it's as if he takes and he pivots and leaves this audience for a moment to have a moment teaching his disciples. Now, sitting here, if you're new to church, let me help you understand the disciples, the 12 men that Jesus has had along with him and has been instructing them, they also represent believers. Okay, so if you claim the name of Jesus and as a Christian, this message specifically today is for you. And as we keep going, it'll hit all of us. All right, and so he pivots to do this instruction. It's almost like he's teaching the, the message here, but then he turns to his followers and he gives them something that goes, that intentionally is going to be for motivation and kind of 
passage after he's gone. All right? So with that set up, let's launch in to Luke 16, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13 this morning. Listen to the word of the Lord. He, uh, being Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one is who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's go before the Lord and ask for his help in making this passage truth in our life. Lord Father, how we praise you for the day and we praise you for the opportunity to open your word. God, I ask that in this time, Lord, you would, you would open our hearts or give us ears to understand what you would teach to us. Lord, I pray that even in this place, God, you would give us a place of vulnerability before you. Lord, where conviction may exist, may it have its work. Where approval and uh, affirm, affirmation, God, would it. God, help us to understand your word. Thank you so much for truth. I ask, God, that you would even use the words of my own mouth. Make them clear. Make them from your Holy Spirit. And God, may we leave here different because of spending time with you. In Jesus' name. And amen. I want to take the first few minutes and I want to unpack this parable to you because there's some portions that are easy to understand and then we get to verses 8 and 9 and I think it's going to take some careful time just to kind of talk through uh, some meanings and then in a few minutes we'll get to some practical application. Um, but we kind of begin, our story begins with Jesus going, there was a rich man. There's several things that we see and can learn about the significance of this rich man's wealth. Uh, the first of those was that he had a manager that was in place to run all of his business effects, if you will. It was a commonplace that someone with such 
large finances or wealth or entrepreneur would, would hire someone to act on their behalf and to manage and oversee all of the businesses. And as we go through this, we see that this manager was a busy guy. I mean, he's got different levels of wealth going on and different uh, debtors to deal with. But here's a key point to know. When the manager acted or did, he did so as though he was on the authority of the rich man or the owner there. We also see this man's wealth from the amount of debt the people owed him. And we don't know how many debtors he had, but we have just two illustrations of two here. Uh, two illustrations that, uh, of guys that owed a significant portion. And so this manager has been accused of being wasteful, kind of like the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasting or not using well. And he is being accused of being a wasteful of his boss's possessions. And the word has now gotten back to the boss. And the first thought for this manager is we might think, well, he's either stealing or he's embezzling the money, but he's just simply being wasteful right now. So his boss does what a right woman would do. He says, all right, turn in the account of what you owe, and essentially you're fired, right? And so about to be out of job, this manager has some decisions to make. He, he's got a, a tough scenario playing out in his head, and we're privy in this parable to kind of the thought process that he enters. And he goes, all right, so about to lose my job, I'm too weak to dig uh, or to pick up a shovel, and I've got a pride issue, and so I'm not willing to go and beg. And so what we hear from this and kind of some rises up that we know from uh, Jewish writings of history in this time is that it was customary for the Jewish man to learn a craft or a skill, and if he did not, then he was expected to be a good digger. And so the manager is looking at shoveling not being a good option for him, and he decides to make other arrangements to help get things together. The parenting side of me speaks up here and is like, sounds like he needed a shovel in his hand at this point, right? Get some work ethic in here. All right, anyway, so all this has taken place, and so he makes this decision before giving the final report. He's going to go to the debtors, the guys that owe the rich man, and he's going to step in and, and arrange for himself men that would owe him, people that would owe him because he cut them a massive deal. Listen to this. Two debts that were mentioned. One debt was for 100 measures of olive oil, which is the equivalent to 900 gallons and would be the yield of around 150 olive, olive trees. He says change it to 450 gallons in essence for conversion there. Now, I don't know about you. You might know this, some of you that are investors or whatever. I don't know what the, uh, the current stock price of olive oil is, but either way you slice it, 900 gallons is a chunk of change uh, for some olive oil there. The second debt that we have is for, it says, uh, the measures of wheat, but it's literally 1,100 bushels of wheat. It's the produce of around 100 acres, and it was told to be cut to about 150 bushels. Each of these reductions equaled two years' wages of a day labor for each of them. And so keep in mind, the debtors would most likely not have known why the manager was doing this. Uh, at this point, they I'm sure if they're wise, they're probably asking a question, what are you doing or whatever? Um, but in that, 
the perspective we have is that the manager is lying and stealing straight up from his boss. Right on the way out the door, he's already about to lose his job. And to get himself prepped for what he's about to walk into, he has set up this scenario where these debtors will be indebted to him so he can step out and have a place to stay, in essence, so people will take him in. Now, reading through this story so far, that's verses 1 through 7. We arrive at verse 8, ready to hear the scorn of the rich man. Only he does something. And, and this is where, man, it's just, it's, I'll, I'll be honest with you, a lot of study just around verses 8 and 9 and, and trying to understand. Only for the, the rich man to commend the manager for his shrewdness or his craftiness. In essence, the manager doesn't go, man, you've just robbed me. Instead, he steps back and goes, well, that was good. Like, I don't know about you, but my brain struggles right there for a moment. I'm like, all right, what are we getting ready to learn here? And so this struggle is, it was such that even I'll confess, there was a day back in March when I read this, I was going down the hallway in our offices over here grabbing pastors going, all right, I need to know. Help me understand this because this isn't jiving here. And for a couple of reasons. One of those is we read that and we go, okay, if there was another piece to the story and Jesus was seeking to kind of use the, ma the rich man as an illustration. But what we find actually is Jesus is teaching from the perspective of the rich man. So with that, hang on for the ride of the next couple minutes here of how we kind of digest that. All right? But the point is, uh, this point though of contemplation right here of what Jesus is saying is what I believe draws us in this morning to understanding this. You'll also notice it wasn't until verse 8 that this manager is referred to as dishonest. Up until that time, he's referred to as prodigal or wasteful. He was commended, though, for his craftiness to provide for himself, but in the end, he still has a job, uh, excuse me, still does not have a job, and he's no more to be heard from. So the perspective of, we'll read this word in verse 8 of commended, and we take that kind of sitting here at face value of going, well, man, that sounds like a good thing. In essence, it's, it's not good. He's still out. He's just saying, not bad. Now, why does he say that? Here it is. In the end of verse 8, it says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd, or crafty, in dealing with their own generation than their sons of light couple of definitions for you here. Sons of this world, meaning of that is unbeliever, one who is lost in their sin and not a part of the kingdom. For these, their only hope is in the things of this world. Someone who's lost and apart from Christ, only hope is in the things of this world. Sons of light, these are the believers. So in essence, Jesus is speaking to disciples and, and also referring to them as sons of light give you, if you're taking notes, here's a few references to kind of grab onto and study uh, for that kind of reference, Sons of Light. John 12, 36, Ephesians 5, 8, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 talk about the believers being sons of light or people of light in their culture. Here's the point, though, that Jesus is making in all of this. Ready? Unrighteous people do things to secure their own future gain in very clever and ingenious ways. They use the resources around them with shrewdness, whether honest or dishonest. We know this is how the world or our culture often will operate. 
Unrighteous people, they live with this passion and cleverness to maximize their gains for the temporal kingdom of this world. Whatever it takes, whatever I can do to maximize. It's the heart of unrighteous and the temptation of the believer to do all we can to maximize and to get that which is before us. But hang on to this understanding of the shrewdness of the unrighteous. And understanding the craftiness that's being spoken of here in this, in this scheming, maneuvering a little bit, if you will. And now we come to verse 9. And let's read it together one more time right here. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. A couple of different language pieces here. The ESV we're reading, but in the NIV, it, instead of unrighteous wealth, it calls it worldly wealth. This unrighteous or worldly we wealth, rather, it could be misinterpreted. And my first reading of that from English is going, all right, you're telling me to unrighteous wealth would be, okay, I'm going to embezzle money, I'm going to steal, sell something illegal, uh, something along those ways that wouldn't be doing business with godly intention behind it. And that's not it at all. The meaning towards using the world's money or funds earned through your jobs, investments, and inheritance. In the original writing, in the Aramaic language here, the word is not so much around wealth or money, but is a word mammon. Mammon. And the word mammon encompasses money and possessions. And as consumers, we realize there are people in various places of business that work feverishly to discover new and better ways to make more money. In fact, some of you here are watching, that may be your very job. You're responsible to help your company strategize and come up with ways to be more profitable and solid. That's good. That's, that's a good position in many cases. And yet, at the same time, as consumers, we've often had perhaps those thoughts when we saw a bill or paying for something in the last few months and you see a price increase and you feel like, man, someone's getting awful shrewd on the other side of this bill. Like, what's going on here? And it feels like someone is just creating ways to gain money or you are stuck with the bill because someone had a more shrewd way of putting it together. But the idea is around this craftiness, thinking about and then he says this. Here's the application. Make friends for yourself with unrighteous wealth. Take the things you have. Listen closely right here. Take the things you have or income earned and invest it in relationships, thus making friends through what you have or your income, your investments, your possessions. Think about it. We know how to do this already. The relationships we have, we've often invested in those out of our resources, okay? Most of what we're going to talk about today, though, talks about purpose of how we invest in those relationships. Let's keep going. And so, you know, the dishonest manager, he shrewdly devised a plan that would be of great benefit to the debtors, but ultimately it would be a benefit to himself because he wanted them to see him as gracious and in need because when his time of need came, he needed someone to have compassion and go, hey, I owe him. I've got to take him in. And he set up two people for that. The teaching here is to build relationships 
with others through the resources that God has given each of us. And this is not a passive type of building relationships. It's an emphasis on doing with active passion and purpose, as with the attitude of the the manager here. It's not intended. The purpose here of shrewd is not to mean sinful gain or sinful income. The purpose is around to think strategically how to use resources for the purpose of building relationships. But let's, let's get our mind in gear here for just a minute if you're not with me yet. Is the illustration that Christ is teaching is not one of going, you know, hey, I need you to purpose a little more here, guys, on being intentional with what you have. In essence, he's taking this manager who was in a not quite life or death situation, but he was in desperate need. And he's saying of this same element is the same urgency and shrewdness that I need you to put into building relationships. Now, out of that though, why is he doing that? Why build these relationships? What's the purpose? Stay with me in verse nine, if you will. So when, look at the last part, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Still a bit to unpack here. When it fails, let's go phrase by phrase. When it phrase, fails, rather. This it is speaking to the unrighteous wealth. And notice that it is not an if, but a when. This failure points to the failure of our resources to be the provision of all that we are created to be for the glory of God. Please hear me quickly on that. The, the stuff of this world, if you haven't realized at least your heart is tempted or you understand the truth of what I'm about to say again, that the things of this world at the end, no matter the income or the amount, what you possess, how full the closet is or the bank account is or the logo that is displayed, it will never be enough. And so it is that Jesus gives this and he says, when it fails, knowing that it will. And then he reaches in, they, they will receive you. What does he mean? We need to pause here for a moment. Because at the end of this, he says eternal dwellings. And here's the point, and just for a minute, I need to kind of take us into a little heavier mindset for just a moment. Because we spend so much time spending our lives distracted about everything that's before us and around us. And yet what Jesus is taking to is the point of eternity. He's taking us to the place of the end of our physical life and eternity. We need to consider death and eternity for just a second. Because there is a time coming when each of us will take our last breath in this life. And believe it or not, there will come an end. And at that moment, your life is going to deliver the eulogy of the kingdom for which you invested your life. And the question arises, what will the relationships of this world testify is the result of your investment into their lives? He says, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This they points to those that surrendered to Christ as a result of the investment believers made to build a relationship and display the gospel. Jesus is intentionally pivoted right here. Don't miss the scene. 
and he's looking at the, the guys that are going to carry the gospel to the nations. And even why we're sitting here today is because of their message. And he says, I need you to be shrewd and crafty in building your relationships, righteously building, but be intentional about building your resources so that the gospel may be on display that they may hear it and submit before Christ. Eternal dwellings is a reference to eternity. This parable is not about Jesus commending this manager for his actions. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's to convict and motivate the believers to maximize our resources for the sake of building relationships for this kingdom. And so it brings us to our practical application of today. Our first one is this, invest in others. And the question arises, are you using your money and resources to invest in the kingdom? Does the account of your spending reflect investing in the gospel? Does your generosity expose itself? Does how you spend your money, whether it's to the local church, other places, does it reflect a pouring and investing into the gospel? Even here as a church, we've asked you to prayerfully consider our reach giving campaign for the summer. And whatever may be a step of faith we've We've encouraged you to take place in. Maybe that's a way that God's calling you to be part of, of giving in that. Others, that's, a part of that is supporting missionaries financially. Giving, those investments. Giving to godly organizations. And some of you, forgive me, let me, let me step into, just kind of hit, hit everything right on the head here. Some of you may be quickly turned off by even my comments towards that and go, fantastic, another one of those preachers asking for our money. And, and I want you to hear my heart. The, the, the motivation here is not corporate so much as it is to the intentions of our hearts and how we're intentionally purposing them towards living for Christ and how we use the resources that he has given us. I'm also keenly aware in myself of the temptation to come to this place of going, okay, that's enough giving. I've arrived. I'm good. Check that box. I can move on. And I just want to challenge us to be at a place of constantly kind of tilling the soil of our own heart and asking the question before the Lord, is there more that you need? Is there a place that I can be more engaged in that? What does the spending of your paychecks and investments say about the relationships and lifestyle you're building? The practical everyday things. If, we, if you were to sit down this afternoon, which I hope you will, and you just look down the register of where your spending goes, is there any reflection in that that points to a building towards the gospel? No, I'm not saying everything. Man, yeah, that's our goal. But are we using what God has given us? In Acts chapter 4, we see the believers selling of their items, taking of what they had, not out of their wealth, but taking out of their basic necessity and giving to others as there was need. And Jesus is saying, be shrewd and crafty in how you use your funds that they would intentionally be used for the gospel. And you say, well, pastor, it's tight. I get it. Been there, still there. Possessions, though. You, I don't have money, so forth. What about your possessions? Are you maximizing the investments of your possessions? Is your car maximized for the gospel? I don't know what that looks like. Think creatively through that. We all live somewhere, and our home is a great resource that needs to be maximized for gospel relationships. 
A great idea I've heard is if you have children, set up your home as a place the neighborhood kids want to come and play. That they would come and be there, entertain, let them have the fun, but yet they would see a godly family on display living for the gospel. Serve those in need. Perhaps maybe God would stretch you a bit and call you to engage the orphan crisis in our, in our area. Even currently, staggering stat, in 2019, there were 17,049 children in the North Carolina foster home system. 17,000. Whatever that looks like, and use your home there. Maybe it's serving meals or grilling out to display the gospel, whether it be your families, friends, or have coworkers' families over. But maximize your home for the gospel. I would tell you, even in that in church ministry, maybe you're not called to lead a small group. Maybe host one. Be willing to make that available. That along the way, whatever God has equipped you with. And let's, let's just paint a broad picture right here just to kind of set the stage. Maybe you have tools, lawn equipment. You've got an awesome backyard that somebody else doesn't. You've got a boat, a camper, fishing gear, golf clubs, or a grill. How do those things go about being used for the sake of building relationships that have a purpose of pointing to the gospel? That's the point right here. And Jesus is saying, I, I want you to be that shrewd in your thinking. I want you to think through, be intentional. And let's just recognize as a people here, that is a tough intentionality to grab on because we're so driven right here. We're driven in the things of this world, and we have to be at times because our job calls for our priority. Our family is right before us, the just making the focus of the needs. But Jesus is flipping the script right there. And I think if ever there was a time for the people of God to begin investing in others or to do so, it's in our own culture now as the ambassadors in the kingdom. But how do the resources you have look in investing in others? I would even encourage you, you go, okay, well, I don't have any of those so far. No money, no possessions. Fantastic. I still got one for you. Use your talents. And don't say you don't have a talent because I know you do. All right. But do you have a talent or gift that would serve well even in the body of the church? I can tell you we have all of our ministries are in need of volunteers. And I don't mean that as we're lacking. I mean that as God has blessed us to be in a season of growing. And that means the opportunities are available from the platform to serving with kids. And man, if you're already involved, whether city serves, small groups, or working with kids, and, and you're a part of this church body, hear me say thank you. Thank you for doing so. Don't hear this as me saying, hey, I need you to get burnout on volunteering. All right, that's totally not the goal. But at the same time, let me just encourage to evaluate how we use those resources. So far, all these things, though, are pointing to an outward. And we need to flip it here as we kind of come to our ending. Because none of that takes shape. None of the investing going out. None of that. You, you know, we like to think, and in fact, it would be easier that we would just go, yes, I can hit a button and I can do all these things. But it's this next piece that truly brings it all together, and that is this. The purposing of our heart. purposing of our hearts. And the first one we see in verse 10 is the purpose to be faithful in the little things. 
Listen one more time. It says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. You could be sitting here dismissing the last few minutes because you believe in the scheme of things you don't have much to offer. And it's quite possible it's this exact attitude that Jesus is speaking to in our disciples here. They already left their homes. As they did ministry, they went to villages asking people in the village, I need a place to stay, trusting for God's provision. It is the purposing of our heart in these little things that determines our faithfulness to invest when supply seems too limited. I challenge you to consider throughout Scripture, it was the weak, those who had less or had become empty, that Jesus did his great ministry through. These verses teach us in order for God to entrust you with more, we must be faithful with the little he's put before us. And even if the only thing you can point to is the air in your lungs, then I beg of you, invest that breath to the glory of God. Second part of that is the purpose to be faithful with all things. Verse 11 points to the resources of this world, using those resources well so that God can entrust to you his true riches. These true riches, these are the things which are eternal. How many of us, we're so guilty of seeking to build our personal wealth and stability, yet pass on the things that are eternal. Yet the, this same wealth that we strive for is what will cease when our lives come to an end. May it be the challenge of our heart right now, I just beg of you, that we would pursue the true riches, that which is eternal, which outlives our life. But then ultimately, it's the greater question at the end of this when we purpose our heart. Because when you're dealing with intentions, yeah, we can say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be obedient here. I'll do this. But the real challenge of this arrives in verse 13. Purpose who will master your heart. Question is this, what is it that makes the people of this age more shrewd than believers. You ever sat on that thought for a minute? You ever feel like you looked at people of this world and go, why is it they always seem to have the greatest business success? Some of them don't seem to be lacking in, in financial needs. They just seem like, man, is, God, are you rewarding them? Am I missing something? And we look at this shrewdness almost with this jealousy that we're like, it, it just seems greater. But there's a great reason behind this, and it, it, it's frustrating to us as believers, but I believe here's why, and that's this. The lost, those that are unrighteous apart from Christ, they have the privilege, hear that word very, very carefully, but they have the privilege of living with an undivided heart. Meaning, if the heart doesn't belong to Jesus, it's single focus and self-control, meaning it's undivided and there's no struggle for the things of this world or pursuing it. The, the world is their kingdom to build and to do so at their command. And there's no need to submit lordship to any other as the goal is and sh probably should be to have their best life now. Live for this kingdom. Because unfortunately, when eternity arises, that could be it. And yet I beg all of us to listen to verse 13 right here very carefully. Jesus, and ultimately, man, does he know our heart. 
good grief. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. Please, from the youngest of kids, students, college, all the way to the oldest of adults, as we are tempted with our eyes and the lust of our flesh by the things of this world, the truth of the gospel is you cannot serve God and money. And the question must be asked is who is the master of your heart? Jesus says you can't have them both. Matthew 6 Verses 20 and 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where they can be destroyed, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. One theologian even said it this way. Listen close. Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Covetousness makes us the slaves of the devil. Where's your heart today, my friend? Is your heart undivided to the temporal things of this world and live shrewdly to gain more? Or are you sitting here struggling with that divided heart that believers, we, we struggle with because we wrestle with this temptation. We wrestle with the temptation of this world and the longings of our flesh. And at the same time, we're doing all we know at times to live for eternity. And I want to say, please don't surrender that ground. And if you've come today and you find yourself weak, and your heart being tugged further down the road towards the things of this world, maybe even today you just come before the Lord and say, Father, may my heart belong to you. Because whether it be the possessions, it be the money, the investments, the fame, the reputation, it will all find an end. Oh, may it be that we would see the grace even a of Jesus to provide such a parable, to speak into our hearts, to draw us with such an odd example of a dishonest manager, but yet to speak into us, to live with this craftiness, this alertness, this shrewdness. This is the grace of the gospel, that you would see the temporal nature of the things of this world that grasp for your heart and see the love of the Savior that illustrated that sacrificial love so that you would understand the true riches. The challenge of this parable is to use your wealth for gospel-building relationships that we would one day be greeted in eternity by the, those that came to Christ through such relationships. I pray no matter where you are in these moments, you would see the love of Christ and either you have or would call him your master. I want to read passage of scripture to conclude our time this morning and I, I think it's amazing how how scripture just at times can just speak its own summary of all things and man if, if you're caught in that believer and you're you're captured by the frustration of this world and the, and the digging and the holding the grinding for the basic needs and yet living in purpose for God and you're going man this is a battle I'm striving to die to myself, yet the things of this world are fighting for me. I want you to hear the hope that our Lord gives us. And yet if you sit here and you go, I've never come to the place of trusting Christ. And I feel, I've lived and am ex 